I'm going to pray, and we're going to dig into the scriptures this morning. Uh, Jesus, thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to, uh, to stand in your word, to build our lives on that, to see how that impacts this, this broken world around us. Lord, to see a story like Zoe's is one that, that shows how directly your gospel applies to some of the hardest to reach areas of this world. And we ask that you would, that you would bless and shape that story in us as a church. Lord, that we would be standing for your justice, for your way, for your truth uh, in this broken world. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so it has been a pretty wild week. If you're paying attention, uh, it feels like nobody is happy this week in our, in our political world. Everybody's upset at something, and it's a hard time in our culture. One of the challenges of the way that culture is going right now is that uh, there's a lot of um, attacking and frustration and anger. If you spend time reading your Facebook you know, feed or whatever the case, it just stirs anger in you. Even if there are some people that agree with you, there are lots of people that don't. And that's true for everybody in this room unless you have a very selective feed of who pours into your mind. Everybody stands on a different side, seemingly, with where we're at right now. And one of the great challenges of us being uh, human beings in this world as followers of Jesus is that if we fall into the trap of seeing people according to their Facebook posts or seeing people according to their political views or seeing people according to how they present themselves in the world, then we will find ourselves constantly frustrated, angry, wanting to lash out, disappointed, discouraged, and overwhelmed. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live like that. That sounds awful. But one of the things is, I don't think Jesus wants us to live that way either. He challenges us to see the world differently than the world can see itself. This is a passage that we've come back to a number of times over the last two years. 2 Corinthians 5.16, it says this. It says, for from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. One of the things that needs to change in our minds, the, the transitions that needs to go on in us, is that we don't actually view people as their frustrating, disappointing, flesh and blood persons that they are because they all are frustrating and disappointing, every single one of them. 100% of people are frustrating and disappointing to somebody else. That's the nature of humanity. If we only see somebody according to what is presented to us physically, then we're going to treat them not the way that God desires them to be treated. So Paul writes about this and he says, all right, so we don't regard anybody according to the flesh. We see them with God's eyes. What changes in your approach to humanity and your approach to life and your approach to people and relationships and politics and all of that if you don't see people according to the flesh, but you see them according to the way that God sees them? What changes in you when you look at people and say, that is a person who is knit together in their mother's womb by the hand of God? Psalm 139. Think about that for just a second. That's not Christians only. That passage applies to every human being that has ever lived on the face of the planet, that God knit them together in their mother's womb. They are made in his image. That's not just for Christians either. 
We have the redeemed image of God in us through Christ's finished work, absolutely, but every human being is an image bearer of the Most High God. It's part of our created state. That's part of who we are. And when we see that God desires every single person to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, that he wants every person to know him, to experience his grace, that not one would perish, that nobody out there would experience the pain and the suffering and the loss of being separated from their creator. God wants everybody in his family. He wants all people back with him so that they can experience the fullness of his grace, his generosity, his kindness, his eternal life. That is God's stated desire. So when we start to see people that way, it forces us to change how we interpret the things that they're sharing with us. We start to see them as people that God loves and desires to be with him. We start responding to people, not as people that disagree with us or that say things that frustrate us, but as people that God loves and desires to be with. That he wants together with him for all eternity, that he loves and encourages us, his people, to go after and to love and build up. Today we're talking about local generosity, and there's a, there's a specific reason that I start with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For a lot of us, it's very easy to talk about Nepal and Thailand and to send money and help to places where broken things happen because they're broken places and that's where the brokenness is supposed to be. But when the brokenness starts to crash in on our beautiful community, our, our clean Thousand Oaks, our sanitized Thousand Oaks, the place that we love and call home, when the brokenness is here, it's actually somewhat frustrating. It starts to infringe on our quality of life. It starts to become a nuisance. And the brokenness that exists in our community is actually a point of frustration for many people as opposed to a source of compassion and ministry and encouragement. The difference is out there, brokenness, let's help, let's be generous. In here, if I could just keep the brokenness out of my town to where it's not infringing on my safety and my comfort and the people that I love and care deeply about, then all will be fine. Now, I'm, I'm speaking in pretty large generalities at the moment and pretty harsh terms, and that may not be everybody in this room, but the reality is how we see the people immediately around us is oftentimes very different than the way that we would see those same people if they lived somewhere far away from us. It's easy to have compassion far away. It's a lot harder when it's close by. We're talking about local generosity today, and we are going to give a ton of money away. You guys are ramping up for that, and I'm really excited about that. And it's going to be a lot of money, and it's going to be really fun to just lavish local foster care ministries with resources to do the work that they do, to carry the name of Jesus into some of the darkest and brokenest homes in all of Ventura County. We cannot wait for that. But the fundamental challenge with local generosity is that it can't just be our money. See, when it's Nepal and Thailand, I said this last week, I don't speak Nepalese, I don't speak Thai, I don't live there, I would not be the most uh, helpful person to go and do the work of the ministry over there. So we empower indigenous people to do gospel work in places where we are not. So now let's apply that same concept to our community. We need to empower indigenous people to do gospel work in this community. Who are the indigenous people to this community in this current era? It's us. 
We are the ones that speak the language. We are the ones that know the community. We are the ones that live here that are neighbors with people. If somebody from a foreign context were saying, let's go and tackle Thousand Oaks, their most strategic effort would be to come to a place like this and stir and stimulate us to greater good in our community as opposed to being the ones that just come in and do it. That's why we don't go to Thailand and just take over. We train up Thai people to do ministry and care for people in their community. We don't just go to Nepal and take over. We train up Nepali people to do ministry. Well, if it's going to happen here, it's got to be us. It's got to be us. So laced in with our financial generosity today is going to be a heavy emphasis on us participating in the work of ministry that's going on in our community. Last thing before we dig into the scriptures, uh, there's an important differentiation between condemnation and conviction. Condemnation is what comes when we start to feel guilty and ashamed for the things that we haven't done and it leads us to further inactivity. We throw our internal hands up and say, I haven't done this, I'm not good at this, I can't give anymore, I can't do anymore, and we just bury ourselves into greater and greater apathy or inactivity or frustration or non-participation. Conviction is something totally different. By the way, condemnation, according to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's not how Jesus works. He doesn't lay his hand of guilt on us or shame on us and say, you shoulda, you didn't, I don't want you here anymore because you're not doing enough. That is not the way that Jesus works. But there is conviction. Conviction is what the Holy Spirit uses to stir us to repentance and to, to grow us to participation in the things that God has for us. And it's a fine line. And Satan would love to take the conviction of the Spirit of God and use it to condemn us and shame us and lead us to greater inactivity. But the Spirit of God wants to take his conviction, his work to stir us to greater good and greater love in the name of Jesus. So my encouragement to you will be, as we are going through our time in the Scriptures, if you start to feel the weight of condemnation, you need to proactively battle that with the Gospel. That's not how Jesus works. And you need to move towards conviction. Spirit, is there anything that you're saying to me today that I need to grab a hold of, that you want to change in me, that you want to stir in me to repentance, to greater love and greater good and more Jesus in my life? Okay, so that's on you. I can't do that. I can preach the same message and some people will walk out of here guilty and ashamed and condemned and others will walk out of here convicted and excited to see God change them. I can't control that. That's actually on you and how you receive the things that God is saying to you today. So I want to encourage you to embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit and actively combat the condemnation that Satan would bring. All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to dive deep into the book of Leviticus. So if you have your Bibles, go to Leviticus chapter 23, and that's where we're going to get started. If your Bible doesn't actually open to Leviticus, you might need to crack those pages and blow off some dust and figure out a way to get it to turn to Leviticus chapter 23. The reason that we're starting in Leviticus is so much of God giving the law in the Old Testament was about him revealing who he is to the people of Israel. Two things were happening when God gave the law. One, he was building a society. You could look at uh, ancient Israel and you could see that they were actually one of the most like safe and contained and economically powerful societies at an early era because of God's law that he put on them. It worked. It was helpful. It was 
good for society. God built a society. But that's not all that God was doing. God was revealing himself to Israel so that the nations could know who he is by how he lives. So this is one of the things that God gave for Israel to do. It's an agricultural society. So God gave them an agricultural outlet for generosity. It's on us to then translate, since we're not as much of an agricultural society, what does that mean for us in our current economy and the way that we generate income? We have a different approach to that. So what does this mean for us? So this is Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. God says to Israel, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Now that final sentence is really important. When any time that God says to Israel, here's how you should act, I am Yahweh, those things are connected. This is what you should be like because I'm Yahweh is God saying to Israel, as you carry my name out into the world, you are representing who I am. So when God gives this command to Israel, he is saying to them, this is who I am. Carry this into the nations. So let's talk about what he's asking them to do. We're not really an agricultural society, but imagine you were. If you drive to the beach right now, you'll see it's artichoke season. So imagine you have an artichoke field. Who loves artichokes in here? It's one of my favorite veggies because they come covered in butter and salt. Um, So you imagine your field, consider it a rectangle, and God's law is to say, I want you to take a tenth of your field, the edges of your field, just just take 10% of that and don't harvest it. Your job is to not touch the edges of your field. That's going to be saved for two groups of people, the poor and the sojourner. Let's talk about those two groups of people. Israel was given land as a nation, It was divvied up to the tribes and divvied up to the people of those tribes. Everybody started with land in Israel. It was actually a beautiful thing that God did. But over time, uh, people make unwise decisions or uh, somebody dies and the, the widow can't afford to keep the property or there's some calamity, something happens. And over time, what starts to happen is you have poor and the well off. You have people that struggle. This is inside of Israel. And God doesn't condemn these people and say, you should have lived wisely, you should have lived by my law, you should have done what I said, you should have, you should have, you should have. He says, there are going to be poor among us, so I want all of you who have land, who have means, who have the ability to live your life in a way that provides for those that cannot provide for themselves. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to have every field owner not reap to the edges, and you're going to leave the edges for the poor to come and get whatever they need. So again, imagine your artichoke field in Camarillo, and you leave the edges, and it's an open season invitation for anybody that cannot go to the store and buy those artichokes to come to your field and gather for themselves baskets and baskets full of artichokes and take those home and eat those. Maybe an artichoke isn't the best example. It's not a very nutritious vegetable. I apologize. I picked the wrong one. But you get the idea. The idea is that you are to leave the edges so that the poor can come and glean and gather and have because they can't provide for themselves. He also wants them to provide for the sojourner. The sojourner is the foreigner that's traveling through. And this is where God wants to make sure that his people communicate his name to his not people. 
the people that have not given their lives to him, God wants to make sure that his name is known as a generous God to all who interact with those that go through the nation of Israel. Every single person that walks through. I want the guy that's walking from Iran all the way up to the UK as he walks through Israel. I don't know if anybody ever made that trip. I'm just using this as an example. I want everybody that walks through that fertile crescent that goes through Israel to be able to gather in our nation whatever they need for their travels. As they walk through, your field, the edges, belongs to them. So again, this is on us to start to take this principle of margin and apply it to our lives. What God is inviting us into is a life where we actually don't live our lives to the very edges. This is the opposite of the communication of culture, by the way. Culture calls us to live our lives to the very, very edges, to max it out, to live on all of what you have, your hours, your money, your energy, max it out. And then when you're done maxing it out, just hit a five-hour energy, just stay up a little more, just spend into your debt and go beyond what you are capable of doing. And God's wisdom is to actually, rather than living life to the very edges, to draw back from the edges. The message that God's given all the way through humanity, and this is you know, people kind of try and figure out, like, is the tithe for today? Am I supposed to give 10%? It's kind of irrelevant. Just think for a moment of the way that God has invited us to experience him, where his, his command always has been, I am the provider of everything, so give back to me a tenth that I can use to, to take care of all these other people. That's been God's way all the way through. Live on 90 and provide 10 back to me so that I can take care of those who can't take care of themselves. That's God's principle, regardless of if you apply the tithe to law or not law, whether every Christian is required to give 10% or not required to give 10%, this is God's way of providing for those that don't have and that are in need is to live off of 90. So what you think of is your income, your work week, your efforts, your energy, your ministry, God is calling you to live on less so that you can provide for those that are in need. That's his principle of gleaning. So now I want you to keep that in your head. We're going to actually circle back to that. Uh, and I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. These will be up on the screen behind me. If you just want to read it up there as well, you can. But Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking to a group of religious people known as the Pharisees. And this is actually him teaching something that is somewhat um, condemning for those that are outside of the family of God, but affirming of those that are responding to God appropriately. So just so you know, uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but those that are outside of Christ Jesus that feel condemnation, that is an appropriate feeling of condemnation for those that are outside because they're not walking the way of God. They're not doing his will, his purpose. They're not a part of his family. So starting in verse 34, Matthew chapter 25, 34, Jesus is teaching, he says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? 
And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So Jesus is sharing a, an important posture with his people. And this is what Paul echoes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. When Paul says that we regard no one according to the flesh, he's talking directly about this passage where Jesus says, as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. What he's talking about is that when we go out and do ministry and mission and we pour out love and generosity to those in broken places, that is living out our perspective of whether we see the world the way that God sees them or not. What Jesus is communicating is what you did to the least of these, the hungry, the thirsty, the sick, the imprisoned, the broken of our society. You are expressing your understanding of who I am and how I see these people. Jesus is saying, I am the least of these. They're my people. They're the ones that I want, that I long for, that I, that I ache to have as a part of my family, and you are how I want to embody grace to them. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he said to Abraham, and to us, he says, through you, people will experience my grace, my kindness, my mercy, my compassion, my forgiveness, my generosity. We are the expression of Jesus to these people, and that's what he's communicating. What you did to the least of these, you did it to me. This can be an overwhelming passage. And this is where it's important to walk the line of conviction and condemnation. Because what can end up happening is we can get totally overwhelmed, totally overwhelmed in that every homeless person that we drive by, we just think, did I just drive by Jesus and do nothing? And we can get overwhelmed by the idea that there's so much need out there. There's so much struggle out there and so much darkness. I can't do anything. I can't fix all of what's out there. And then we end up doing nothing. That is a device of Satan to get you to do nothing. So now let's talk about how it does work. Conviction leads us to repentance. Conviction stirs up certain attitudes in us and leads us to repentance. And then the transforming work of Jesus leads us to ministry. To equip the saints of the work of ministry to where the fullness of Christ and we're expressing that. I don't believe that Jesus is going to look at you and say, you see all that out there? You should have done all of it. Like, I don't think that that's how he tends to work. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 9, it's the next passage that we're going to look at. I believe, based on the last few weeks of our teaching that we've done grace gifts and spiritual gifts and ascension gifts, the different gifts that we've been given, there is a targeted opportunity for each of us to contribute to needs. And it's important that we understand that God has given us not only vision, not only command, but also means and ability to minister to a unique group of people in the midst of the needs that exist. So go to Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 36. Now the point of Acts chapter 9, the main reason that it's in the scriptures is not the reason that we're going to be looking at it. Uh, the story finishes with Peter raising a woman from the dead. That gets all the glamour. That gets all the highlights. Everybody loves a good raising from the dead story. That's not what we're looking at. So don't worry about the raising her from the dead. We're not going to deal with that. We're going to deal with Tabitha because she is amazing. So Acts chapter 9, 
starting in verse 36. It says this. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. This is the part that I want you to see. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Here's the thing. And then he goes and raises her from the dead, and it's beautiful. She gets to keep living and ministering and all of that. A couple of things about this story. Tabitha was a disciple. She had given her life to Jesus. Just like many other disciples, Peter and James and John and Paul and Barnabas and, and Philip and Stephen and these incredible gospel evangelizing, multiplying, take the nations for the name of Jesus disciples, Tabitha was also called a disciple. The expression of her discipleship, of her being like Jesus, is to go back to her hometown to live a simple Jesus-loving life where she uses her wealth. It's believed that Tabitha was actually a wealthy woman. She uses her wealth to buy and make garments and tunics for widows who could not afford to have clothing on their own. This is huge. Because it's one thing for us to think of glamour ministries. The preaching and teaching, the Billy Grahams and Luis Palau's of the world, or the, the people that are going to the nations, that are planting churches, that are doing great work, and we think of that as, that's God's work. What we don't often think of is the woman that quietly makes clothing for widows. That's God's work. And Tabitha doesn't need to feel guilty that she wasn't out planting churches. In fact, her story is elevated to show us that disciples following Jesus, doing his work, it translates to different things for different people. And that's what I want to make sure that you hear from this. If you were to sit down, and let's just say coming out of this, you were to say, all right, Jesus, what do you have for us locally? Our family. How do you want us to minister? What, are, what do you want us to focus in on? How can we serve you by taking your name to the broken places of our community, I believe that Jesus would answer that question. I think he would give you insight. I think he would give you opportunity. I think he would hone your gifts and your passions to be able to express his name into specific places where a need exists. Here's the beautiful thing about a church like this, a gathering of God's people, is that it's not a group of generalists. It's not everybody doing everything all the time, but actually a collection of specialists. Just in this body, just in this church, we have people that go down on a regular basis to LA to minister to a homeless community and love them and encourage them and preach the gospel to them and take care of their physical needs, their spiritual needs, their emotional needs, just to be friends with them and have conversations with them it's beautiful. We have people in this community that uh, take in foster babies. We have one family in this church that I think has had something like 53 babies come through their house over the last five years, straight from the hospital into their home until they can be placed into a foster family, taking care of a specific need that God has placed on their 
hearts and ministry. We have women that go and do Bible studies at a local battered women's shelter. We have men that go to a local uh, like juvenile facility for imprisoned kids and they play basketball with them and encourage them and minister to them. Those things are happening here in this body and it's not the everywhere, all the time, all the things, I can never do any of it, I should do nothing. It's the God, what have you put on my heart? How can I express your heart to broken people? And I believe God answers that question when we ask. Uh, over here, this is my mother-in-law, Colleen T at gmail.com. Uh, that's not her, actually. That's her email address. Uh, but I share that because one of the projects that Colleen's doing is she's taking on um, trying to gather all of the different ministries that exist within Anthem Church. Like, you could look at our, our website and you're like, wow, this church doesn't do a lot of ministry because, honestly, we, we don't. Like, the corporate church, we don't do a lot of ministry. But if you were with us the last, like, eight weeks, that's not what the church is at all. The body of Christ here does a massive amount of ministry into the broken and the lost and the hardest to reach places in our community, and we want that to become visible so that you can join in and participate and, and partner with others to go and do more, to be generous with your time. I'm guessing that if you follow Jesus, most of you are not saying, I really don't want to do any good. I'm guessing if you've given your life to Jesus that most people do not come to the conclusion that I don't want to help anybody, I don't want to show grace to anybody, I don't want to be compassionate to anybody, I just want to do my thing. Most of us, when we give our lives to Jesus, want to express that in some way, shape, or form. Well, here's an important text for you. Go to Titus 3.14. In Titus 3, what Paul is writing to this young apprentice, he's shaping in him how to lead a church. And I think this is an important passage for you to see. Some people are naturals at this. They give their lives to Jesus and then it's like, all right, who can I help? Where can I go? And then you just hear stories of them serving like crazy and doing unbelievable things and then you start to think, I could never do that. Well, this is an important passage. Paul writes to Titus and he says, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. It is a learned skill to do good as a follower of Jesus. It's okay if it's not natural for you. In fact, it's normal if it's not natural for you to do good. That's part of our fallen nature, that's part of our broken humanity, is that we get pretty self-contained, self-interested, self indulgent self, self, self. That's kind of the way that we tend to operate as human beings. So when Jesus comes in and says, hey, guess what? It's not all about you. And you go, whoa, it's not all about me. Then it actually takes effort to learn how to do good. And Paul's challenge to Titus is, hey, let's devote ourselves to learning how to do good. So what does that look like? Well, there are a couple of things that I think are really important. Number one, when opportunities arise, even if it's a stretch, even if it's a challenge, even if it's a little bit inconvenient, start by trying to say yes to one of those opportunities. Just start by trying to say yes. 
Hey, a few of us are going down to UCLA. We're going to go evangelize to the fraternities down there. Sure, I'll go. Why not? Hey, a couple of us gals are going to go and we're, we're just going to take a meal to, uh, to a, a girl's home in Camarillo. Uh, it's a girl's birthday. We want to bring some balloons and some presents and just, just shower this girl with Jesus for, for an evening. Who wants to come? Sure, why not? Hey, a couple of us guys are going to go shoot hoops with some of the kids in prison. Who wants to go? Sure, why not? Start by saying yes when those opportunities open up. If you don't have something already, that's the thing. Honestly, if you're operating in guilt right now, the people that are already doing a ton, if you're not guarding yourselves against guilt and condemnation, you're going to start to feel like you're not doing enough. And those are the people that that's, that's the hardest for, is the ones that are already kind of maxed out on ministry. You hear a message like this, and then you actually start to feel guilty for not doing ministry. Stop it. Stop. Seriously. Have you ever heard of the 80-20 rule? Like 20% of the people in any church do 80% of the ministry? It's because the sa Satan loves to use guilt to burn us out. He loves to use guilt to just make us feel like we're not doing enough and then you start doing more and not doing enough and start doing more and not doing enough and start doing more until we just flame out, tap out, and we're like, yeah, nope, I'm out. Not gonna do any more, I'm done. That's a victory for Satan. So stop letting guilt rule you taking on more. That's one. Number two, if there's conviction, listen. There are incredible opportunities that exist that I believe through this church are not yet uh, tapped into. There's a, a growing LGBTQ plus community that is struggling with more depression than our, our world has ever seen, more suicide than our world has ever seen, more loneliness than our world has ever seen, and they feel like they can't step into the church because the church is the one place they can't go to be loved and encouraged. So we have to go to them. We actually have to go out to love and encourage and build up and minister to and breathe life into and show that they are made in the image of God, loved by their creator, and welcomed into the family of God. It's critical. It doesn't mean that we accept it, that we have to change our theology, that we have to rewrite scripture. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that we have to love. We have to go. We have to. There are I mean, I, just, I mentioned the LGBTQ plus community, but even just in the high schools alone, depression, through the roof. Medication, through the roof. Suicidal thoughts and tendencies, through the roof. It's beyond anything that culture has seen in any generation up to this point. We need to love into that place. We need to go into those places and be lights in those dark places. The needs that exist are profound. And you might feel like driving by a homeless person that you've somehow let Jesus down. There are positive ways to engage the homeless community that are not just giving whatever's in your car to every person that you see. There are excellent avenues to walk down where you can be a part of the true solution to what's going on in the community. There are ways to go about the business of doing good, but it's gonna take learning. So number one is start by saying yes and being a part of that. Number two and this has to do with generosity of finance. It is important that we give and that we are proactive to give well and support people that are putting their lives into ministering to people in these full-time capacities. Particular challenges, if, you're a, if you are a business owner, 
and you have the ability to build into the financial framework of your business a charity, a good component where Jesus is lifted up and people are ministered to through the work that you're doing, the, the profits that are coming into your business, if you can structure that differently so that generosity is actually a part of your framework of your business, that is a huge opportunity. The money that can come through the corporate world outweighs any other avenue of finance. More money flows through corporate than any other part of this world, and you could grab pieces of that for the kingdom of God. You could do that as a small business owner, and you could have profound and substantial impact on the kingdom of God financially. If you're a a, a part of something. That's where this, like, celebrate generosity, what we're talking about right now is a huge opportunity, again, to look at your life and say, where can we live on less so that we can provide more for those that God wants to provide for? That God wants to provide for. God doesn't look at the poor of our community or the immigrant of our community and say, you had your chance and you missed it. That is not God's posture his posture is towards the church to say, take care of them. Let's love them. Let's show them generosity. Let's show them grace. Let's show them kindness. Let them experience my goodness. That's not a political statement. That is a statement of who God is. We have to live that out. So as we go through this, there are ways for you to start to engage this. Again, not towards guilt and condemnation and then ultimately to doing nothing, but towards conviction that leads to repentance, that leads to transformation, that produces a greater good. Let us learn to do good works. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It's part of our new creation design to do good. And we are to respond to that in faithfulness. So here's the thing. I want to close this out with the gospel and make sure that that does not, that we don't bypass who God is. Remember the statement at the end of the gleaning passage, I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. And if you are with me, this is now who you are. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Your new identity, your new personhood is to adopt the heart of Jesus, the person of Yahweh, and to live your life as Jesus, as Yahweh loves this world. That is your new posture. That's, you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. But it's also a learning process because we're to learn to do good works. So what is true about you is also what is becoming true about you. My challenge today is in Christ, strive for more. In Christ, this is not about whether Jesus loves you or doesn't love you. That should be abundantly clear and that is not up for debate. You are loved by God. This is not about whether you're doing enough or not doing enough because again, it is a process, it is growth, it's development. It is about obeying Jesus. If you feel like Jesus is saying something to you through the scriptures or prophetically or, or even just speaking to you as an individual. If you're being called to something and you say, nah, which is like slang for no. <laughs> if you say no, that's disobedience. That's unfaithfulness to the call on your life. <laughs> so you say yes. Say yes. 
Our goal for Celebrate Generosity is to try and generate a massive yes, just a, 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 an easy win, an opportunity for you right away just to say, this is either I'm going to start or I'm going to press into a, an act of generosity. Our family is going to cultivate generosity. As parents, families, talk about it. What does generosity look like for us as a household? What does generosity look like for us as a family? How can we live that out? That's an important thing to talk through and wrestle through and work with. It's good to do that with your kids and let them see the processing and even the pain and the struggle of generosity. It's not easy to be generous, but it is important. So I want to pray for us. I want to ask God to call us to great things, both in our action and in our giving, but I want us to see that this is the heart of God. I am the Lord your God. This is who he is. And we want to look like him. We want to imitate him. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for all that you've done to stir us to great things, to good works. Lord, thank you for what is being done. Thank you for those that are uh, using their margin to be faithful to your call. Lord, I think maybe I'll pray first uh, just your protection over those people that, that might be maxed out because they gave uh, to you and are currently giving to you. I just I think of certain people in the church that uh, their tendency is always to take on more of uh, what they would do for you, but sometimes the motives for that can be uh, not your voice, but just the, the guilt of nobody else is doing it. I just pray, Lord, that you would first just protect those people, even from Satan's condemnation and guilt that they're not doing enough. Part of that protection, Lord, would you stir a larger percentage of us? Our dream would be 100, but a larger percentage of us to doing good, faithful work in our community, being generous with our money, being faithful with our time and our energy, and being compassionate with our hearts and with the eyes that, that you've given us. Would we see people not according to the flesh, but the way that you see them, who they are, who you've created them to be, and who you ultimately want to redeem them to be, Jesus. Pray, Lord, that through this church, uh, Thousand Oaks, Simi Valley, Camarillo, Oak Park, Agora, Westlake, Oxnard, that these immediate surrounding communities would experience resounding grace and compassion. Lord, that it would be um, overwhelming grace that flows out of this church into our community and that people would know Jesus because your people lived Jesus to this community. We love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.